Welcome to another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Tim Kirby of the Tim Kirby Russia Reloaded uh, YouTube channel. And he has formerly been working with uh, various uh, news channels. And we have him today to talk about different issues, including uh, what is happening with Russia and uh, how Russia is being perceived in the world. Tim, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me very much. And yes, I've been pretty much all over the Russian media as both a guest and sometimes as someone who works there or does independent projects for others. So well, you have been moving, you have moved to live uh, in Russia as an American. Yes. Can we start uh, from yeah. that and tell us about that experience? Well, yeah. Uh, how, uh, how long have uh, you been living there? The, the problem is I kind of get asked this question every day, so please forgive me if I'm a little burnt on answering it about why you come to Russia. It's one thing where, uh, unfortunately, Russians, uh, even uh, that, that the stereotype that Russians are patriotic uh, is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, that's changing now as we're speaking, but especially when I came here 15 years ago, that was certainly uh, not the case. So anyways, generally Russian people are te- they tend to be uh, stunned, shocked, appalled, and maybe more more than anything, offended uh, that I chose to come here. Uh, but I don't know, uh, maybe uh, Chris can relate to this. I don't know about your background, but I am a bum from the inner city, man. I am a nobody from the absolute bottom rung of the American ladder. However, all of my ancestors, despite the way my last name looks, uh, all of my ancestors came from Eastern Europe. So long story short, uh, I wanted to give life uh, a new life, a new try back in the motherland. And uh, it worked out really well. And so that's why I'm here now. Well, I think a lot of that, like America, like the way American soft power works is what you're seeing reflected in the Russian population, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union or the intentional mm-hmm. implosion of the Soviet Union. There, uh, uh, you know, the West created the narrative that, you know, Russians were were we're nothing and worthless and the West is what you have to look towards oh, for advancement. Yeah. And, and uh, the, if you want to talk, that. if you want to talk about the influence of that kind of stuff, well, you can see if, if you travel around the former Soviet union, like the uh, mentality that was bred in Ukraine, the Russophobic mentality there, it is literally just copy and pasted all over f- every former Soviet Republic. Right. And even within some of the uh, republics within Russia as this sort of a, uh, uh, generally, the 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 overall message is that if it weren't for the Russians, you'd live like kings. If it weren't for the Russians, you'd be as rich as America, and so on and so forth. But there's some republics that are breaking back. I lived in Kyrgyzstan for a couple of years. I I love the Kyrgyz people, and uh, they were being pulled back and forth between the U.S., who had the Manas Air Base there, yeah, and uh, to to bomb uh, and to re ref- it was basically a refueling. Uh, Base that they were using and a, a situating base to. to I saw the planes with my own yeah. eyes, man. I went there for a vacation one year. Oh, one right. the very few vacations I've taken uh, as a as a father. Uh, I went to Kyrgyzstan to meet my uh, one American buddy who was living there. We went to a yurt hotel, had a blast. Kyrgyzstan okay. is very nice, very chill. We'll talk about our connections in Kyrgyzstan off air, but uh, yeah. anyway, it's a fantastic country and it's very unknown by American travelers and. Uh, I I was traveling in another country and I met two people from that country and as I thought I always like to feel I know about the world and I, they told me where they're from and I was like I was like Kazakhstan I was like 
uh, like Kurdistan. I was like, yeah. what's Kurdistan? Like there was a, a new letter in the words that I never heard before. And yeah. I was like, I don't know anything about this country. And I was like, I have to go there. Cause it's like, I feel terrible. I don't know about a entire country in the world. And uh, so I, you know, I worked in the next couple of years to get to travel there after especially hearing from them about it because it sounded amazing and it is amazing. It's green and, you know, oh, it's yeah. like Switzerland of, 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 yeah, uh, Bish- Bishkek is an amazingly green capital city. It's probably the greenest capital city I've ever seen, including Moscow, which actually has a fairly large amount of parks. Moscow's not too bad on that, but uh, Bishkek's better. Yeah, so so anyway, what I was going to say is like they were pulled between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, we were fighting over, over dominance, especially in the government. And they had two coups that were basically U.S.-sponsored coups to try and kind of destabilize the government because they kept shifting towards uh, Russia. They 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 did pass a law where you have to do all the governing in Kyrgyz, but that kind of failed because no, they they still worked in Russian. So like, I, I don't know if that's, they pushed that further and they only do it in Kyrgyz now. But I mean, it, Russia was, a, I mean, Kyrgyz people do have their language in there, but there were a lot of Russians that live there who also spoke Kyrgyz. Like, so I, it was kind of absurd. Um, and Russia, the Russian language also allowed them to like, to like participate in with their neighbors as, yeah. and so I think that's very important as a small state. Um, and the U.S. was in there, and the Canadians were in there putting up gold mines because that's one of the main resources there. So there was this huge geopolitical battle. But I was super happy yesterday to see that they uh, that the 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 government took a a marked shift towards um, towards Russia. So uh, mm-hmm. I um, I think I think it's not it's not as clear as all the states being. Ukrainized or Taiwaneseized or whatever preposition. Well, yeah, and well, I, I mean to say that one of the um, uh, I'm not the thing is I can't really comment on Taiwan, but I mean to say that really that uh, technique it has kind of worked, but Ukraine is a little bit different, and that's why it worked there to the extent that it did. Whereas with the others, uh, there's always this sort of attempt to repress the Russian language. Uh, you know, say if it weren't for the Russians, they'd be richer. Uh, to basically kind of um put the blame uh, on Russia and really hype up uh, the history of Russia as being the first half of the Soviet Union uh, because the Russian Revolution and the counter-revolution that followed are really the periods in Russian history that uh, uh, people who are both Russian and non-Russian, where they get their gripes from. Because if you talk about, like, what would someone in Chechnya or someone in uh, Tiva or Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or wherever... What what would they might be salty about? It exactly. all comes from that particular small window of a thousand years of Russian history, and of course, uh, our friends at the State Department really like to focus on that time period because it serves their interests. I think what you just said is the key. It's basically the it's the cornerstone of the CIA in 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 geopolitics. Is they go to countries and they just find what what their core anger is what their core dispute is and then they just foster that so that yeah. then they can be like their ally in the thing that they're not being supported on in their in their current political power structure so then the u.s can keep that in their back pocket all around the world in all the different countries they have these like groups that are you know pissed off at the main power and they uh and they just use them occasionally and then they sometimes they're like okay you know in five ten years we want to have a, a larger conflict here and then they engage in like mm-hmm. propaganda exercises where you promote like removing of languages and 
like they did in the Ukraine where you weren't allowed to speak Russian anymore. And uh, that was, you know, those are kind of very obvious steps towards towards conflict. And I, I have oh, a yeah. Ukraine friends. I'm always shocked at like just how they can't see that that was done to hurt them. Like those were. Things oh, yeah. All- well, it's because people don't think, man. I mean, in every one of these countries where they try to pass some sort of law to somehow ban Russian in one way or another, all their kids learn English in schools. Yeah. Mandatory. Exactly. You know, I, that's one thing when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan, that was like one of the first things I noticed. I was like, guys, we don't see that there's some sort of cognitive dissonance going on here. And you tell people there and they're like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> it's their neighbor. It's their big neighbor that they should be friends with. And then they're learning a language from halfway around the world. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's bizarre. Well, the justification is that's the global language of intercommunication and blah, blah, blah. And I ask, okay, why is it then the language of, uh, you know, global communication now? Cause you guys lost the cold war. Right. And then it's also, it's like, oh, you see what I mean? It's like, uh, there's, there's always these, um, uh, and one thing I try to tell Russians and one thing where I'll, I'll sort of, um, kill your hopes for the future of Russia, uh, is this whole concept of like having, uh, worked out apologetics, uh, seems to be completely lacking in Russia. You talk to people, no matter what their fancy suit or fancy army or fancy police or whatever uniform is, they don't get it. They're they're at that level, and that's about all there is. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of this stuff has worked, because uh, uh, Russia's good at fighting, as you, we can see when with the Ukrainian conflict, when we have the battle between PR and metal men and explosions, uh, Russia does really well. When it comes to the whole PR thing, it's like, uh, not so good. Yeah, that's it. That is clear in Ukraine that the, the U.S., at least in the Western minds, has, has, is winning on PR because it's a totally different story on the ground than people think. Uh, yeah, and yeah. that, you know, Ukraine is, is absolutely getting slaughtered. Uh, and yeah, so. I guess the Tara had a connection problem. Yeah, I think I saw her for a freeze there. I was thinking, have I, have I been so boring that she fell asleep? Because uh, she sort of froze mid-blink. So I was like, what's going on there? But but that'll happen. But uh, yeah, I can uh, tell you that uh, for this whole Ukrainian conflict, it really, really has been this battle of uh, like the, the Ukrainian or we could say Western side of things. They really were, I think still are, pretty sure that the real method of winning is this like PR and manipulative way of doing things? Because I guess it worked during the Cold War, but things are different now, and people don't really seem to understand that that the Cold War is over. All right, connection uh, probably better. Was. Welcome there back. We go. All right. So uh, maybe we could talk about what you would you think that the having lived there as an American, what you think Americans should know about Russia as about social issues. And about um, just just you know the you know the propaganda. So what what are the big like lies that you would like people to realize or are totally? Not oh, uh, maybe on some sort of like basic level of sort of life in Russia level is recently I got encountered by a couple um, people asking these kind of questions which seem uh, bizarre and uh, laughable when you kind of live here. But they make sense if you were to read guidebooks and travel books about Russia. So, for example, I think everyone was very happy with, like, the travel information that was about Russia in the 1990s. And they've been copying and pasting that or going with that 
to this day. So the one example was uh, someone asked, should I bring jeans and other items to Russia to use to barter with? And it's <laughs> like, dude, this <laughs> is, yeah, it's like, dude, there's a barter. I, I said that, I mean, barter oh might technically God. exist because you can't really get rid of it. It's a phenomenon that's existed since like the beginning sure. of, since prehistory. But like, dude, you're not bartering for stuff. People have jobs and they have cards and, you know, you buy something by tapping your card to this, uh, you know, the, the thing that takes your card or sending people money and, and all this stuff. And yeah, it's, it's a, it, it is not that kind of economy. There's not this weird thing of like trying to sell jeans on the street for money that just doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. However, in 1991, 92, 93, end of the Soviet yeah. union, that there was some truth to that. There was some truth yeah, to you, that. You could get um, a lot of money for the jeans that you brought. So there was, there were travelers who could like pay their airfare with just packing a suitcase half full of jeans. So there was yeah. real truth in that, but like the, it shifted very quickly. Once. Very. That, so, that I, reminded me of Netanyahu's comments a few years ago where he said that people in Iran are not allowed to wear jeans. Like the government doesn't allow people oh, in Iran why? to wear jeans. Well, they should really just do a Google search of like Iranian people and they'll see men wearing jeans. Um, but anyways, <laughs> uh, that's one of the most frustrating things is we have so many tools available. Like even to, uh, I would really recommend everyone who's watching this, uh, do your Google earth or whatever it's called Google map and actually do the, like the road view, go around some capital cities in Africa. People there aren't that as poor as you think. And you can that do kind of the same thing for Russia too, to be honest. So, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, how I'm curious. And uh, Iran really has like the whole the like, map the is available. Really? Oh yeah, Google Map. It's yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can just zoom in and see everything. It's yeah. I think it's only North Korea where you can. Nairobi, I think, is what you're saying, right? You're doing like Google Street. View well, yeah, I was thinking like, uh, 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 what's the capital of Rwanda? K Kigali or whatever Kigali, was yeah. one. Because I met some people from Rwanda. I was like, I wonder what it's like. And it's like, yeah, they're not that poor. Maybe you know, out in the sticks, people are, but I, I don't know. It's uh, you can take you can take kind of these little tours around the world and really see that um. Like this, uh, like whatever the world was like and say right after World War II where the United States was way up here and the rest of the world kind of here. I think the West and the rest of the world, it's gotten a lot more sandwiched. I don't think that there's as big of a difference. I just did an interview with a uh, Somalian general. Now, if you look at some pictures oh. of Somalia, Somalia is rough. You don't find That's, too many yeah. nice pictures of Somalia. Oh. But like besides them and a few other really, let's call them troubled areas, uh, more or less, uh, I think the... Global average is kind of um, it's like again the the global uh, sort of um, spread has become a lot thinner uh, than it used to be in terms of uh, I don't know what you'd want to call it I hate the term quality of life but I guess that's what would, what what would apply to what I'm talking about look it's stupid when you say average the whole thing is stupid that's the problem people aren't looking at they look at it's a political game to look at who how the economies work because like just for example mm. I could live in a tent in Jeff Bezos's backyard. And he, I would be counted if they counted the people on that property as one and then average the salaries, I would still be like, uh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. People in the world, but I don't have any money and I live in a tent. And that's the problem. In the US, there are incredible poor, uh, the poverty here is incredible. People just don't realize it. I mean, if you just, there are now YouTube channels that make their entire living just documenting poverty. I mean, they do these yeah. like, they do these tours of like Philadelphia and these big cities showing these people just like 
dying on the street of overdoses and just living in tents. That's all it is. It's like hours and hours of this footage, and it's getting millions and millions of views around the world because people just can't believe it. And they're making tons of money because it's a lot of clicks. So if anyone out there wants to make money and you live near a poor area, I recommend getting a camera and making. Well, yeah, listen, uh, friends, uh, Hollywood has done its job because <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, even, even after probably... all the stuff that America has done to done to the world, the various different wars, your Yugoslavia, your Vietnam. Although I could say uh, to, to I could kind of justify Vietnam with uh, uh, is, is this battle of ideologies of the Cold War. So let's go after the Cold War. We got your Yugoslavia, we got your Syria, your Libya, Iraq twice, Afghanistan. I'll put a lot of pressure on you folks there in Iran. I haven't created an all-out invasion quite yet, but a lot of murder across the world. I bet that within five to ten years, if America just kind of chilled out, really focused on Hollywood, it'd be forgotten. <laughs> Completely. Probably true. I mean, because when we think about Africa as a as an entire world who isn't African, when you yeah. think about Africa you always think about the poorest people in Africa. But when you think about yeah. America, you think about the richest people. Yeah, exactly. For a reason. You don't and think that, about you know, me, <laughs> the, the right. poorest person in America. <laughs> exactly. Or or yeah. in, in Russia, like it's like oligarchs and, and poverty. Like there's no like actual functioning economy or whatever. I mean, the, the, the propaganda yeah. narrative works so well. So I think you're totally right. Like Hollywood. Oh, yeah, that's why people can't believe that there's almost like a 1950s middle class here. There's so many middle class people in Russia because uh, I mean, the government is a uh, Russian government is going to lie. And it, I, I actually usually don't advocate people believe statistics about Russia, but the Russian government in their opinion thinks that 14 to 20 percent of the population is poor or like not middle class. So let's just say hypothetically they're not lying to themselves and lying to us. 80% of the population is middle class or better. I think that's within the realm of possibility, man. Like yeah. it really is that way. Uh, maybe to be safe, let's say 70%, just to be super safey, safey and tell the truth. Well, so. I think the disparity is what you need to look at. Like how much of the population is, what? where is that gap? And, and the gap, like in some countries, like Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries are really good at shrinking that gap. So you don't really have any poor extremely poor. I mean, they think they're poor, but they're not poor. I mean, they could buy iPhones or whatever. So yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, so they, you know, that the actual physical despair of being poor can be really controlled if you have a economy that wants to do that and cares about it. And I think a lot of countries, social, socially organized countries like Iran or uh, Russia, even more than, than the West for sure, uh, is, is doing that. But uh, like in, in terms of your idea of propaganda, you can see it in Ukraine because the Western propaganda is so good that it's convincing not only Ukrainians. Like I have a friend whose father just volunteered to fight, and it, he's like, "Why would you do that? I mean, you know, you're just gonna—it's horrible." Yeah, feel, your chances aren't very good. I don't know how to communicate anymore because it's just like, I like, it's the brainwashing is so intense that it just—you're gonna just go throw yourself on this war that's obviously being pushed for Western benefit and not for the ukrainians and then americans hear this propaganda and they go when they know the front line i mean we know the front line survival isn't measured in hours and uh so yeah. you're throwing yourself just you might as well just shoot yourself in the head just save yourself the air flare and give it to your family like uh, it pretty much no <laughs> yeah. well especially if you shoot yourself then they will find the body so <laughs> exactly. because you don't get you don't get ukrainian uh benefits for the from the military if they don't find the body um, wow. which is uh yeah which is a uh, wow. which is uh, is a good policy for Zelensky there to keep a lot of funds for himself it's uh, unbelievable 
So, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this is some very uh, dark uh, theater, uh, Satan's uh, sort of playset uh, that uh, the war in Ukraine has become. So, what do you what? How do you feel that's going to be resolved? Because now this drone attack. They're saying that Russia's going to escalate. I, I don't know why they haven't escalated. Uh, I, I don't think that has anything to do with it. Uh, you have to understand uh, that the uh, issue of this uh, war in Ukraine, or I should say the war, let's just call it the Ukrainian crisis is a better term, a term I've used many times. I should have used it right now. The Ukrainian crisis has been the number one news issue in Russia since 2014. There's been no exactly. news issue that has superseded that in the news. So this is a decade of this issue being issue number one. And so we just had uh, the 2nd of May, which is the anniversary of the massacre at that government building in Odessa, where they killed all the pro-Russian uh, protesters and burnt them alive. It's also a little bit debated whether they were killed and then burnt or they were burnt alive. It doesn't matter. Still dead, still burnt. Um, and, uh, you know, there's already justification. Like, there's no need for, like, some people in the West are like, yeah, it's got to be some kind of false flag. The necessity for that was already gone by like 2015. They were already sat. Russia was already satiated with enough uh, bloody imagery uh, to accomplish that goal almost a decade ago. So, no, I think that that's not going to have any particular effect. And as we've seen so far, uh, Putin, thankfully, isn't a very sentimental person. Uh, and he's not really worried about like, I've got to achieve this by this date because that's a holiday and it's going to prove something. Uh, like I said, one thing about Russians being very terrible at PR is they don't even think about that kind of stuff. They are really not concerned with any of that, you know? Yeah. Well, what what do you think the chances are of China coming in there? And Because and, I think that is a very fascinating possibility to have China actually like spearhead peace there because they did it with with Iran and Saudi Arabia in a way, I, I mean... It was a it was a PR win absolutely for China um, throughout Africa. I mean, you can see all the African governments now are like falling and saying, "We're mm -hmm. not going with the U.S. anymore. We're going with Russia." And so, what do you there think? There is of a proposal already, right? Like uh, Zelensky also talked to the Chinese president, and they were that they would uh, like talk about what is the solution to come out of it. Is that right? Well, the one thing is after that phone call, or let's just say during that phone call, Zelensky still stated that essentially, uh, okay, we'll allow the Chinese to be the negotiators, but Crimea belongs to us. All the territory that was gained has to be given back. Like, so the, the phone call, or at least from what I read, remember, maybe people are lying. Maybe, you know, this phone call between them, because I'm always kind of very curious about like um, how these uh, journalists always uh, seem to have these great details about these phone calls. I think that's what they... Because remember, maybe Zelensky's PR firm said that publicly, you know, that that's what was discussed in the phone call. But privately on the phone call, maybe they said something completely different. But at least right. the official record says uh, Crimea has to go back. So essentially, that's it's a non-starter. It would just be the Chinese uh, observing um, two sides that can't possibly reconcile based on uh, that uh, position. So, like the like the so-called reconciliation that we have between Turkey and uh, Syria, but Turkey is saying that it's not going to withdraw its troops from the yeah. northern territories of Syria. 
Yeah, exactly. If uh, Turkey doesn't give up the buffer zone, I believe is the term that they use, the 30-kilometer buffer zone, well, it's it's sort of like, you know, you can't, it's it's one way or the other, and I don't think that you're going to be able to compromise. I don't think the Syrians are going to be like, okay, we'll take 15 of the 30 kilometers of the buffer zone. No, they're not going to do that. So, and that's one of the reasons why it's very hard to make peace, because a lot of people think that um, conflicts between nations behave like conflicts between people, which are a lot easier to resolve. But uh, they don't. Uh, they're very often stuck in their logic games. And uh, furthermore, if Zelensky were to say uh, publicly, you know what, uh, all the territory the Russians gained, we're going to give up on it, uh, he could be dead the next day. Yeah. He's in a <laughs> so, position. you know. Like, if I was him, I would just flee to China. Like, if I was Zelensky, I would just flee to China. <laughs> trying to figure it out uh, i don't know everyone always says the the rumor the rumor mill is that uh, after this it's gonna be uh cocaine in miami man he's gonna yeah, go down so to miami and just park oh, you just posted wasn't it i think i saw it on your telegram about uh, about uh what's his name guido yeah Juan guido. Guido. yeah oh yeah, yeah they're just gonna be walking casually at the airport yeah, oh, yeah absolutely <laughs> Well, in all seriousness, they some people again. Th these are these leaks that uh, they were. Uh, I think it was he has property in like Germany and Switzerland too now. So he may, although he seems more like the Miami style guy. So I think he's going to go to Miami, but he definitely has some sort of assets within the European Union where he can live, very isolated from society and maybe survive till old age. Because uh, the Russians, despite the fact that what the media says, generally don't assassinate people. Habit. Besides Bandera, your heart, your heart will let out with that coke habit. You're not going to live till. Well, old age. yeah. I, I, well, that's uh, the drug addiction is 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 another issue, man. I don't know what to, to say, but uh, I think uh, he's going to party hard till the end of the road. So, to be honest, some yeah, people totally. say that Zelensky's going to get his just dessert. Somehow the Russians will kill him or capture him. Uh, to be honest, uh, if I were a betting man. Uh, I would say that I think he's actually going to survive this. He's been very well protected. Um, and uh, somehow he's actually knows how to survive this because I think a, uh, uh, I hate to say this, but I think a lesser leader would already have been killed by someone from within or without or something. Well, so. I think it's not only him that like his survival matters because I, the U.S. is really trying to get stuff kicked off in uh, Taiwan. And if things go disastrous, especially for leadership in Ukraine, yeah. Uh, and they get slaughtered, the Taiwanese will have something to reflect on in terms of their loyalty. So I think like they're going to have to, for the next phase of this neocon insanity, they're going to yeah. have to at least show some kind of passing loyalty to the to the people who who promoted their lives and and whatnot. So I, I think he does have protection from America uh, as long as America lasts. The problem is that the U.S. dollar is... I can't imagine this thing lasting much longer the way it's going, especially with Saudi Arabia. Uh, what, do you have any any thoughts on that, on the, the global reserve currency? Oh, the well, I, I, the one problem is I think a lot of people tend to uh, be uh, a little arrogant, and they think that just because they have some sort of podcast, they can talk about everything, including, including macroeconomics. So <laughs> let's just take any information that comes from uh, yours truly here, who I would consider myself more of an expert on the way that um, – uh, ideology works is probably, I think my strongest suit, uh, to talk about economics. So let's just say, I'm going to throw this out here. We're just a, uh, intellectual exercise. Don't take me too seriously here. I think that there comes a breaking point where the, the dollar is the reserve currency. Like no one is going to one day get together and have some sort of big protest. Like we have to eliminate the dollar as the world reserve currency. That's not the way human beings operate. It's just going to keep dwindling and dwindling. And at some point there's going to be this sort of breaking point. 
where the United States is going to be forced to have to play the rules like everyone else, like the Mexicans and their peso. Or I remember before Italy took on the euro, they had a lot of crises with their uh, lira and some inflation there. I remember as a kid, like one lira, like, I think one dollar was like 60,000 lira, which was crazy. And unfortunately, I think the United States is going to be forced into the world of the reality where people aren't buying their treasuries. The world reserve status is maybe officially exists, but de facto it doesn't. And they'll have to play by the normal rules. And the problem is they're going to have to play by the normal rules with $31 trillion of debt. If I think that, I think that's right. 31 trillion, right? Something like that. And at, at uh, that point, it doesn't matter. Like and that leads one again, the United States is in some ways an exceptional nation. It has some advantages uh, over a lot of other nations. So, you know, would it go down the route of Zimbabwe? I don't know, but something's got to happen. Uh, and especially one thing I just want to add is that if you if we look over the last few months, uh, every week, a new bank is in danger of closing. Exactly. Or closing. And these aren't these weird, like, you know, one thing I guess that's an advantage of America is that America has some sort of like all kinds of like little weird banks. Like you go to somewhere, it'll be like the Alabama Valley uh, School Bank, like some sort of weird, very specific bank that was set up in the 1800s. I'm not talking about those. We're talking about banks that spread across the entire country are closing down and being sold off, which essentially means who they're being sold off to. So we could be having a massive like bank consolidation by a few of the bigger ones to buy out all the medium-sized ones and maybe some of the smaller ones as well. Or we could be looking at the beginning of a collapse of some sort. So I don't know. Um, it's really hard to say. But you if America- your, issue, your straw suit is in like social, understanding social issues. That's all the dollar is it, it, since the 70s. It's no longer has any real value. It was detached from, from gold. Yeah. And then it was sort of semi-attached to oil with the Brenton Woods Agreement with Saudi yeah. Arabia. Saudi Arabia just stepped away from and said, we're not going to trade in dollars anymore exclusively for oil, which yeah. is a major threat to the value because it's just a theoretical value. And economics, like macroeconomics is, is not a science. It's just well, yeah, well, the problem is, is uh, Chris, if, if I had the chance to really uh, uh, go back in history and again, because I'm not like an economic historian, I don't know of a particular instance in history when a country that was that big with a fiat currency that had that much debt, all of a sudden the status of their money kind of just changed and what they yeah. had to do to resolve that. Because like when the, the British after World War II faced crazy uh, inflation and other problems, I think like their debt was something like 250% of their GDP or whatever. They were like way in over their heads and that's part of what sort of broke up, uh, at least officially, we could get into conspiracy theories. At least officially, the British Empire was that uh, sort of economic collapse. But then again, their money was based on what? Real metals at the time. They only went yeah. away from real metals again in like the early 70s, I think. Maybe British people watching, watching could correct me on that. But I think it's 1972, I want to say. But I could be wrong in mistaking Britain for America. But you see, so I don't know of a precedent. Like, I don't well, know what to compare this to. Like you were saying, in a personal issue, sometimes different than a larger like uh, country conflict. Uh, I think it is it's it's elusive to look at the money issue. Like let's say I give you uh, like gold and yeah. uh, and we trade in gold, and then all of a sudden I want to switch over to representative of gold, but not actual gold. Yeah. And then I I want that, and I want I want you to use it with you. I want to continue to have uh, you give me stuff, and I can continue to give you fake gold. Yeah. Like you're not going to do it. But what I could do is I could be the only person with a gun pointed at you 
And if I was the only person with a gun pointed at you in that room, you would continue to do that because you don't want to die. And I think in the 70s, you see that. You see the ramping up of U.S. military bases around the world and the ramping up of the threat of U.S. military imperialism around the world pointed at countries to encourage, to continue the the reserve status of the dollar. And we're seeing that break down as well right now. And And it's also funny because the the United States itself has been the one that caused the breakdown of this. Because trust me, man, Russians, and especially Russian businessmen, are lazy and not very loyal. They would have been happy to sit on the dollar for all eternity because it's comfortable, it's stable, it's predictable, and that's wonderful. But this has all been forced because of this Ukrainian nonsense and the necessity to destroy Russia and China. That's The United States created this problem that it was trying to solve, essentially. That's an important yeah. thing. But one thing we have to remember, let's talk something, something that might be hopeful for America's future and the dollar's future is, uh, you know, if the United States is, again, forced to play by other people's rules, remember, the United States, and about put it, doing things at gunpoint, the U.S. dollar is still the currency of like 330 million people in a country that still has a lot of stuff in it. Uh, maybe all the factories are gone, but there's still a lot of resources, a lot of humans. Uh, so I think that some of the value has to be retained or something uh i'll put it this way it's not like it's not oh how should i put it it's kind of like maybe an old car maybe at one time it was worth fifty thousand dollars but as long as it runs and even if it doesn't run it's still worth the scrap metal price right and america well, definitely has that scrap metal price because it's a, still a big I, place i agree with that i'm not sure that's optimistic but the the pessimistic well, side of that, of that road is where you come to that point, and I fear this is happening very soon, you come to that point where America realizes, you know, we're being checkmated around the world, and this is a decline that we uh, are, and it's not it's not like maybe conscious, it's just the way these big systems function, is that yeah. we're going to come to a point where we have to choose between bending down and uh, following other people's rules, or either going off into some kind of like weird dementia which might suit Biden, but some weird dementia where we function in a world that doesn't exist to the rest of the world and everyone kind of ignores mm. us. Or more scary would be the use of, of massive force somewhere or to create a massive war as a distraction because like wars tend to reset things. And if mm. the person who wins at the end of the war is the one who was, you know, if America won a massive or was the last man standing in a global war of attrition, they'd be able to set the rules again. So yeah, well, that's yeah, that's what happened after World War II, and they might want to do that. But the problem is that most of the world has become united against the West. Yep. So, uh, yeah, uh, who knows? But uh, definitely, uh, our friends there in certain parts of Washington, a lot of their solutions to this problem uh, could be very scary. But we also have to remember that uh, people alive today, uh, maybe including us here, are not the same as they used to be. And I think that a lot of the people who are sort of the globalists are actually not nearly as intelligent and capable as their uh, forefathers like the people who really rose out of the ashes of world war ii to create the post-world war ii reality that we've all lived in most people don't exist anymore okay well maybe henry kissinger's still technically breathing but you know he's writing books apparently yeah well he's technically still alive but so you know after he dies and you know george soros is probably like a frankenstein monster getting new organs sewn in there all the time to keep the keep the engine running but like besides those guys who's gonna replace them all their kids are just a bunch of cokeheads and freaks you know there you you like the perfect example uh because i believe source actually does have children which is terrifying but you know they're nobodies uh hunter biden that kind of person that's that's really who their kids are so 
Uh, I think thankfully we we have uh, humanity can sort of rely on that. But Hunter Biden, twenty twenty eight. I'm looking forward to that one. Oh my gosh! Uh, well, I can't even believe the original Biden uh, was able to win or whatever. You know, after all those, uh, I I really thought that the that some people, especially Trump, could really play up that child sniffing stuff, but uh, that that didn't that didn't have too much of an effect. Well, it's it it obviously did. I mean, it was it's all the media, man. It's all the media. It has to do with they played everyone on that one. I mean, they could have gotten whoever wanted elected because Biden had like a four percent approval rating, and the Democrat like Sanders was way more popular. There's no, it was all just a scam because Biden has more skeletons in his closet, and he's easier to control. Yeah. and that's all they wanted. Well, if you think about it too, like uh, just how much the Overton window has shifted, uh, everyone knew that. Uh, uh, well, uh, everyone. People around uh, John F. Kennedy knew that uh, the youngest president, the youngest president elected at the time, I think, and he's also the president of the United States. So guess what? He cheated on his wife a lot. He had a lot of opportunities yeah. and he took a lot of them. And everyone kind of like could kind of feel that out. But if that would have been really exposed, like while he was still alive and president, oh, that would have been such a huge scandal. Remember back to Clinton, who, uh, you know, cheated on uh, 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 Hillary there. Uh, that was a huge scandal. And like with Biden. His kid is like on video with coke and prostitutes, like on yeah. video. Like you naked. know, it's not, it's like, like they're yeah, not even I mean, rumors. Like yeah, it's uh, it is unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but you see what they did with JFK. Instead of exposing Marilyn Monroe coming over there late at night to the White House or whatever, instead of doing yeah. that, they uh, they just shot him in the head. And uh, yeah. I think that made from that point on. I think the coup was realized and they were able to basically get away with whatever they want. The, the powers that be, whoever they are. I mean, there's a lot of debate, I would say. Uh, there are That's some... amazing how there are so many of those issues in U.S. politics. I mean, coming from Iran, it's, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I, I can't even think. Tim would find that really interesting for you to describe what an Iranian politician is. Like, I think... Let like, me know. I mean, if... The difference of... The difference in an, like what we just described, and how would you describe like how they choose Iran? Well, how do how does how does Iranian politics choose their politicians? Like what characteristics do they look for? Um, like there is the slogan that has been the slogan of the revolution, and it's uh, I mean, people use it as a slogan, and some people, some of the like candidates might try to actually like uh, implement that, but it's like serving the people and serving the ideals of the revolution and the more humble you are the more chances you have to uh. win like um they they brag about i mean sometimes it could be fake but they brag about how like their houses are very modest and they do not have anything luxurious and and like the issue of uh cheating on your i mean that's that's not even i mean yeah. If if you knew that someone cheated on their wives, that's it's impossible for them not only to get into politics, but even in the society, it's considered like, um, yeah, really offensive, and nobody would accept that. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's yeah. I mean, we come from a majority Muslim society, and the Islamic values are the ones that people are looking for in a, in a candidate. In um, yeah, so like for example, the first president that stopped living in the so-called palace. I mean, it's not a luxurious palace, but it was called, called a, like a presidential palace in 
the first one who said, I'm not going to live in that palace. I'm just going to live in my humble house, uh, like down in the, um, like downtown or like the place where that uh, it was actually in a neighborhood where it's known that people of the middle classes or lower classes, actually working classes actually lived there was mm. Ahmadinejad. And that's why he was very popular because he, wow. and then the, the next presidents would not dare go back to that palace because it was already there and th there was an example set. So hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, uh, that is uh Oh, that is definitely different. Uh, unfortunately, with Russia, where Putin actually sleeps or actually is living is kind of actually uh, is a mystery. People will tell you the Kremlin, but he's all over the place, and I think on purpose. Uh, so I was wondering th that leaving the palace, that might be a bit of a security risk. I don't know. Mm, maybe maybe Iran, the homes are well defended. What? It's very safe. There, there's no animosity. This is the thing. As an American, also, I, I noticed. Well, I meant from the CIA. <laughs> I meant oh, from our guys. Yeah, it's true because they have the MEK there. It is a bit of a problem these CIA agents, but but yeah. it is easier in a society where people actually do embrace their leaders and their politicians. Whereas in American and even in Russia, we don't really get that. Uh, but like in Northern Europe, even like I met the Prime Minister of of Norway, just yeah, just the just there. I mean, just there was no security or anything, just walking around. So it's oh. like. Uh, yeah, it's totally different, different, there's different cultures around the world, how they view leadership, but here in America, especially they're so corrupt and they're always doing so many horrible things against the people that mm. it's just animosity that they would deal with. So they have to have mm. security and they actually are threatened with their lives. But if you're from a country where there's low disparity and people appreciate what you're doing, you can just expect goodwill from the public. So it's a very, very different phenomenon yeah. in different places. I, I went, know, that's uh, like when Putin uh, does his uh, yearly, uh, that four-hour session where he takes like calls and stuff from the populace. Oh, well, the one thing is, is if uh, a lot of the Russian politicians were a little bit more accessible, the amount of begging and sort of like panhandling, as we call it, would be insane. Because essentially what that four-hour thing boils down to is people with problems call to beg for solutions. Uh, and in fact, I, I'm a regular guest on something called the All-Russian people's front which was sort of like a ngo kind of organization that's almost i think they may have a cable tv channel I, I don't know their studio is very impressive but anyways they do a live uh broadcast and uh, you know like a like like a tv channel and one of the programs they have is they just have people call in from across the country with complaints and they sort of help them organize those complaints to send it sort of down the line and i think wow. that that's kind of the, the problem with like russia is uh uh, oh, Russians really uh, do not have a can-do attitude. They have the opposite. They have that sort of like a feudal serf kind of, uh, hey, boss, I, I need this. Give me it, give me it, boss. You're rich. That's kind of yeah. their way of uh, looking at things. That's American, too. That's very American. Like, it's, uh, you know, work for it, but you you are in that structure. You don't have individual, like, autonomy. So mm -hmm. that's, yeah. Wow. It's, well, I don't know how, I don't know how that... Uh, how that would bode for the future of uh, of Russia internally, uh, but I think at least the mm. geopolitical realities of Russia right now are are showing themselves to be far superior than than that of the West. Yeah, well, especially uh, if you live here, uh, you can really see it. And I just want to mention one thing that I'm also about politicians is that uh, with Russia, and I think in connection with uh, our. Uh, Eastern Orthodox faith, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy likes its glam. It likes its big churches, its gold yeah. and all that stuff.
But the contrast to that is that the 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 station of the emperor is immaculate and is almost like a reflection of the the heavenly kingdom of God on earth. But the emperor himself has very little. And uh, people are very proud uh, in Russia that, for example, Joseph Stalin had like five things in his will. And it was like boots, coat, and some other stuff. Yeah. So he essentially himself had nothing. But he was, you know, this uh, cult of personality. He was the state. And yet he personally had nothing. I think that that's sort of the uh, ideal sort of Russian leader. So. And that was before it became like kind of the Russian state became corrupted with the kind of like neoliberal capitalism that infested now. And I think that's, you know, mm -hmm. it, it has dealt, it has been able to sort of blend that past social, social, uh, like, like putting society above yourself, which, uh, is what Satara just, just described in politicians in Iran. Like the idea is you, you're supposed to be concerned about the welfare of the people before your own welfare. And we've yeah. lost track of that in the West. And, uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, it seems to be on a spiraling downhill and the countries that have retained at least some of that, uh, spirit are the ones that are, are being more resilient these days. So, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, I guess the, uh, Sater, is there, are there other questions you had? We've kind of dominated this. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I was actually like thinking about the comments that you made about uh, not, I mean, I guess that's not only Russians, but also former uh, like Soviet Union countries that are now um, like independent countries that um, they're learning English at school, but there are not as many people who are learning, like, for example, I mean, other languages. And um, because that's kind of also what I see as a problem here in Iran, where, I mean, we have Arabic, but we start Arabic later than English, and we have more classes of English in our school than Arabic, which, uh, and, mm. and, uh, ah. which is, yeah, that's like, not understandable because that's the language of our religious text and uh yeah. i mean the daily prayers and everything and the society in general is pretty much a lot more a lot like yeah far more encouraged to learn english than uh, to learn arabic uh, yeah. like outside of schools and the classes um so yeah i was thinking like what is your perception of the russian public and like kind of this American dream and American ideal and uh, how much they buy the propaganda against Russia inside mm. Russia. Oh, well, maybe here's the, the, the little bit of a difference between maybe the way Americans sort of see their American dream and the way Russians sort of see the American dream. Like with Americans, if you watch our sort of political discourse, the, the, well, first off, the American dream used to be about uh, sort of opportunity and being free from the binds of like a more traditional European society. Like, for example, the Protestants and the Catholics are killing each other in Europe in the 1600s. So you go to America and all of a sudden you're kind of free from that. You know what I mean? Or uh, you're the loser on the Russia, of the Russian Revolution. You were on the white side. Uh, you can either stay in Russia and die, or you can go to America and be free from that. The sort of uh, freedom from uh, a lot of the uh, uh, problems of the old world and the chance to sort of restart with a lot of space and opportunity. That was what sort of what the original American dream was, but no one thinks of that nowadays. Okay, that's the original concept. That concept 
has changed. The American dream now for people within America and without America is uh, about big house, big car, money. It is all material, okay? So when Americans tend to talk about this, they sort of link their ideology to this. Like there's sort of this liberal thing of it's like, well, if we make these nice social programs and everyone gets educated despite the quality of the education, then that's going to lead us to the sort of golden path. The Republicans are like, no, we've got to have low taxes. We have to have free market capitalism. With modern Russians, the Russians that are here today, they want the house, they want the car, and they don't care how. They don't care about libertarian, totalitarian, fascist, communist, this, don't care. Whoever gives me the house and the car, that's boss. And we all salute boss, and that's what we're going to do. And so in a lot of ways, Russia is very freeing ideologically because all people want are the results. That's all they care about. But they're also then also does kind of make them a little bit ignorant as to where the car and house came from and whether the person has a lot of debt or not. But say Levy. Right. Well, what are the perspectives of Iran in Russia? Like when you hear Iran talked about, is it the same kind of vitriol, neocon vitriol that you get in the Western media? Oh, hell no. <laughs> that, that I can tell you right now. No, no one has any uh, if because remember iran is uh the enemy of israel which makes them the enemy of america and all this other stuff that no the whole obsession with israel thing doesn't exist here uh, yeah absolutely it has never been a problem even when russia was weaker when i first came here iran has never been perceived as any kind of even mildly suspicious uh nation uh, the one of the problems is is we're sort of shifting to this multipolar world, and we're all excited about that. We don't get very much information about Iran, uh, which would be nice if we're going to live in the multipolar world. Let's maybe get a little bit more info on the multipolar world. But uh, essentially, Iran is a little bit of a mystery. But I would say if there's a stereotype of Iran, uh, at least politically, it's that they're the reliable partner. You can always rely on the Iranians. They keep their mm. word and they're willing to work with us. And isn't that great? You know, wow. China's like our big partner here. But Iran always follows right after China because they're so, uh, you know, honest and forthright in their uh, business wow, dealings. So I would say that that tends to be the Iran that people portray on the, the TV. It's like. I wouldn't even say it's like, I don't know, I guess just reliable partner Iran. That's it. But again, not a lot of information because really until like this war started about Iran, the only thing you'd really hear about is that you guys imported or exported uh, uh, here a lot of uh, figs. And that's. Oh, really? it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you hear any of the like negative like uh, propaganda that America says about Iran, and do Russians like re- react zero. to that as if it's a joke, or well, how do Russians react to the insanity? Flat zero. Wow, that that does crazy. not yeah. that does not been, come up wow. here ever. I want to move there. No I'm one so, yeah. no one sees Iran as a as a threat because uh, well, one of the things too is remember is with Russia seeing itself more as a separate power. Has Iran ever threatened Russia? Never. So no one sees Iran as a threat. <laughs> it's, it's pretty simple on this end. I visited wow. Russia in 2012, and I remember I walked into a cafe with my friends mm. uh, in Saint Petersburg, and there were two Russian guys came in. Like they were really friendly and stuff, and we started a conversation, and they were asking us if we were from Israel. That was oh. really interesting. Oh. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, because. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think they because we were because maybe I was wearing the the headscarf. They were thinking of Palestine and Israel, and like the Muslims may come from there. I don't know what where that came from, but that was that was a little bit weird. But uh, in general, like uh, how people interacted with us was very friendly, and I never felt like they had uh, like mm. the ho- at the hostel that I was staying and everything. I didn't feel like some weird reaction from people when I said I, I was uh, from Iran. Yeah, maybe the only where I felt a little bit uncomfortable was uh, at the subway in St. Petersburg. Uh, they asked me and my friends because we were wearing hijab uh, to go through uh, like the, what's that, like the metal detector? Uh, an extra, ch- yeah, a metal detector, uh. which they don't usually ask people. And I understand that because there have been like, you know, bombings in the subways by some extremists. So they have yeah, this idea Chet- that, yeah. yeah. The Islam, Muslim, Chechnya was used during the, the war Chechnya, on terror yeah. to get, to get uh, Russia on board with that. So there was a lot of questionable yeah. in there. That I well, yeah, another big question was how many Chechens were actually fighting on the opposing side, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was one of those yeah. uh, interesting historical notes. Uh, did they ask for your passport, though? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't hmm. remember because that's uh, yeah, more than 10 years ago, but oh, I don't remember. Yeah, it was I more of they a asked for that Islamophobia, probably. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I do because like I asked people on the streets, for example, for addresses and other stuff, and even people didn't know English and like they struggled with uh, talking in English, but they all wanted to help. And I was yeah. wearing the scarf at the same time, like they I never felt. Uh, there was any like prejudice against me. Yeah, yeah, and you probably won't really encounter that anywhere around here because that's kind of not the way things go, especially with women. Obviously, when guys are sort of in that uh, age range of like twenty to twenty-five, and everyone's out late at night, you know, sometimes there can be a little bit of uh, internet interethnic conflict. But uh, I think that's just kind of that um, time in uh, most men's lives. So yeah, so. I don't know. Uh, if you want to also talk about the one thing about Israel, uh, a lot of uh, Russian Jews, even during the Soviet Union, went to, to Israel, and then especially after the Soviet Union, it became easy. So I, I've heard something like about a fourth of people in Israel actually speak Russian. So there's a lot of ties with Israel. But at the same time, okay. you know, Russia sees itself now, finally, as being part of the global south. So the Palestinian narrative of their suffering, of their... Uh, being having their land slowly taken away uh, kind of reminds Russians of a certain country that they live in. You see what I mean? So in some ways about the whole Israeli situation, you see a little bit of a neutrality in Russia because like the Palestinian narrative is more familiar and kind of suits the logic of Russia, but there's a lot of connections with the uh, Jewish side of Israel. So I think it kind of um, evens out in the end. Ukraine is obviously a, like a there's a zionist part of the ukrainian conflict so like they have this uh yeah oh well you should watch recognize that in russia or not but uh, if you look uh, back to my channel uh tim kirby uh hardcore whether you find it on youtube whether the old channel that was stolen from me or the new channel i don't remember which one it's on look for an interview with a guy called afanasi and uh we get into the whole uh sort of a big conspiracy theory that uh, uh, what's happening in Ukraine could be part of a greater Israel. There's a lot of people who believe that that's actually what's happening. Um, there's that. Uh, it's uh, just a bunch of neocons in Washington who are like 
butt hurt from the history well, of Bolshevik. It's actually uh, the local uh, sort of uh, Ashkenazi, Slavic-ish Jews who might actually be kind of butt hurt about the Khazar Empire being destroyed by the yeah, exactly. proto-Russians, which exactly. is, it sounds insane, but remember uh, with the murders and madness that's happening in Israel are also based on things that happened 2000s plus years ago. So, or uh, even, you know, even just recent, I mean, the Holocaust narrative is perpetuating that. So you have this even more recent phenomenon where you, you're able to perpetuate and you're able to victimize an entire group of people. The Palestinians had nothing to do with it and they have to pay the suffering. And it, and it seems logical to no. the people carrying it out that, that we should continue. We should hurt. Well, these. yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely have uh, personally nothing uh, against the Jews. I've actually had mostly Jewish people that I've ever spoken to be very uh, respectful and kind towards me. Uh, yeah. But all I can say is if you look at the power structures in post Maidan Ukraine, well, who's there? It's interesting. Uh, what can you say? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. It doesn't have anything. Yeah, and hasn't. It doesn't have anything to do with Judaism. Like the, I always make this point that uh, the city that I come from, which is the third largest city in Iran, uh, has a Christian community and a Jewish community, and the Jews here have uh, a synagogue and they have their shops. And I mean, they're so actually like, uh, I mean. It's difficult to know if someone is a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim mm -hmm. because, like, we just uh, mix with each other, and it's it's not an issue. So, well, yeah, I mean, if you take a look at say the say the Hasidic Jews, they're very focused inwards on their own family, on their own community, on following uh, the Old Testament to the letter, and doing all their uh, you know, I want to call them rituals. I don't think ritual is the right way. Following the law, following the law to the letter of the law. That's what they're concerned with. And those are not the kind of people who are like the Kolomoisky uh, billionaires who are financing uh, neo-Nazi groups to murder Russians. Those are people yeah. who live a much more secular, uh, blow, prostitute, drinking yeah. kind of lifestyle who just happen to be by, I'll put it this way, they're very the removed from that actual faithful core of people. Uh, yeah, they're using the word Jewish. Yeah. It's like it, it doesn't really tell you what you're talking about. You're not. Yeah, it's kind. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, how how you essentially people like uh, the whole thing. For some reason, the concept that we we talk about Italian Americans a lot. Italian Americans have been in America for five generations. What Italian is left? Nothing. Yeah. You know, and it's. I think it's kind of the same thing because if or you compare again these you know. these uh, Ukrainian you oligarchs know. to. Uh, the 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 Hasidic Jews or something or uh, these really other more hardcore groups. Uh, my terminology is losing. Uh, Sephardic Jews, for example, they're just they're not they're not even related even even loosely. Yeah, just nothing in common. It it is fascinating yeah. how that uh, that ethnicity is. You know, it's it's misused by all sides. Like it's misused by people who want to like claim greater power dynamics, and it's misused by people who. Who are uh, you know? Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's generally well. That's one of the reasons, also, where the Ukrainian works. So let's uh, talk about the Ukrainian side of the Ukrainian cons conspiracy. That's very Slavic, uh, in yeah. its uh, nature. Is that you know, uh, after the uh, Russian Revolution, especially after World War II, you know, a lot of the people who were part of those Ukrainian forces that served Mr. Bandera and all that, they all went to the West. 
And the Ukrainian lobby, especially in Canada, where a lot of these people went to, has been very active. And they've had this dream for generations that they'll come back and punish yeah. the Russians, even after they've been in, you know, they don't even speak Ukrainian. There are, you know, third generation, fourth generation Canadians already. Uh, so, you know, we do, yeah, we do get this thing where it's like these little check boxes in our head of, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I'm an American born in America, this, that, and the other, but I am Italian when I need to be. And we right. can all well, be manipulated just, by this. We just brought like up the Ukraine, yeah. When you say Nazis exist in Ukraine, in the West, obviously the propaganda has shifted. They used to say, of course, even the New York Times, you know, Grey Zone reported like Israel funding Nazis in 2019 in Ukraine. So it's like, we all knew this existed, but now you're not allowed to say it. But yeah. the fascinating thing is, it's not illogical because what you just described is like this dream to like go back and take revenge for your lost is exactly what we have here in the southern U.S. with Confederates. Like the Confederacy yeah. is here and people fly Confederate flags. And if you don't really understand the long-term generational trauma that's been passed down since the Civil War, it seems like, oh, this guy is just wanting to be a racist. But no, there is generational pain that's like being expressed when you fly the Confederate flag that says, you know, we lost everything. This is like we need some rep and it, maybe for the right reasons. I'm not going to get into the morality. Well, yeah, I mean, war. they could feel but the like, Southerners could feel that they're in a lot of ways that they're, uh, you know, we take slavery out of the equation because then everything gets silly. If we take slavery out, we still see that they've probably felt that their ancestors died for kind of for nothing and that they lost time. this. Uh, peculiar uh culture uh, along with the peculiar institution yeah. that uh they felt was something special and they had that taken away from them so obviously they're salty i would say it's kind of like uh a why a uh, man you want to talk about people who hate someone the uh peoples of like the sort of balkan areas how much they hate the turks because the turks yeah. really yeah. wanted to take their christianity away from them you know and so, boy, yeah, there people are people are salty about that stuff. You know, again, that ended with World War One. People are salty about that in uh, Serbia, Croatia, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece to this day. You but know. the U.S. fed that salty attitude in Ukraine since the end of World War Two. They fed Nazism. They fed that extreme, uh, uh, like right wing. You would say like. Uh, Banderites, uh, they yeah. they fed that because they knew they could keep that in their back pocket, just like they do all around the world. They have yeah. like these little resistance groups, and so they actually nurtured that and kept this not not it's legitimate Nazism. It's not neo Nazism. It's like it's a holdover from actual Nazis alive, and now and then they weaponized it, and you have the Azov Battalion and those who who have like you know modified swastikas as their emblem, and everyone yeah. knows their. They're Nazis who are who are rational about it. It's only they are only not Nazis when you're trying to convince Americans to fund them, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is fascinating how that trauma goes. Uh, it does. I mean, it creates these these. Oh yeah, that's part of the greater thing that um I don't know. I swore I didn't make up this term, but I wish I did. Called historical inertia. That a lot of the things that happened in the past, they have a certain amount of inertia where they have to play out into the future. And I think that that's one of the things why, okay, we're still angry about slavery uh, in, in America, especially black people. Hundred Well, gosh, 140, 60 years ago. Uh, but, in you know, are people mad about slavery in the Roman Empire? No. So, like, the Roman Empire's sort of uh, uh, tragedies and murders have sort of sputtered out. That, that inertia was lost. The train stopped. But with chattel slavery of the Deep South, uh, that's still going, you know. 
And of course, that historical inertia, like any moving object, can be sort of fed by different, you know, forms of propaganda to keep that object moving, to keep that inertia going um, into the future. Uh, because if the opposite were to have happened, if we would have had that Jim Crow period and everyone was just like, okay, uh, black America, I guess we're going to all just integrate now slowly over time and we'll give you guys something to do while you all like learn to read and get used to the Anglo-Saxon way of life. Uh, a lot of the stuff would probably be fairly forgotten by now. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it all, it all runs in different rates depending on who's benefiting from it and, and, and how, yeah, how. How capital, how capital can be uh, can be accumulated? As I like to remind people, there is some mm -hmm. logic to looking at Marx's theory. Uh, and um, yeah, so what we're seeing now in Ukraine, I think, is just a perpetuation of this of this power shift, yeah. this power dynamic. And uh, it is it is nice to see Russia holding its own and um, and uh, and not allowing the not allowing the West to to tell another another big lie but i i really am, it's it's just a real tragedy for the ukrainians because they're caught in the middle of this uh, insanity and they a lot of times don't oh, know yeah. what don't know what the truth is and they you know emotionally it's very easy to have these narratives be exploited and then and throw yourself on on the fire and uh, yeah. less than half the population of ukraine that was there during the maidan revolution less than half of the population remains there be they dead or if they fled, a lot more people fled than have been killed. But you know what I mean? Like that's insane about that about is. suffering. That's insane. That's you know, you take 10, 10 people in any country and six of them are gone. Who knows that's where all. they are? Six feet under or in Switzerland? You don't even know. Yeah. And then who's <laughs> gonna come in and pick up the ashes? Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I guess uh, my Russian tax rubles are. I don't know. Yeah. Or BlackRock, if uh depending well, on the, the other though, that's the other side of the line, yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right, man. Well, it's been fun talking. Do you have any other questions, Satara? Or no, that's about it. Well, yeah, hopefully it was we can have interesting you back conversation. Again. Well, yeah, I'd be happy to come back, and I'd be happy to have both of you on my program. But gotta gotta separate you. Gotta separate okay. you two. Maybe separate interviews here. I'd love to have you on. Uh, you both have right, some intriguing stories to tell. And uh, yeah, so we'll we'll get to that soon. All right, that'll be fun. Okay. Well, uh, you can wrap it up then, Satara. No, it's your turn to wrap it up. All right, I'll wrap up the introduction. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. Uh, be sure to check out the links in the description for Tim's content, and uh, we'll uh, see you again soon.